So that's Mark 15, 1023, and we're going to start at verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross now that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samathani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him. Comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Right, well on Sunday evenings we've been looking at some of the basics of the Christian faith and in particular we've looked at who is Jesus and we've uh, tried to answer that question. We've also looked at last week, um, John was looking at um, what our problem is and now we're looking at how that problem, which is sin, our rebellion against God, can be resolved first by God, which is what we're doing this evening. What does he need to do? to remove the barrier between us and him legitimately. And in future weeks, we'll look at, uh, at what we have to do in order to access what God offers us on the basis of what Christ has done, how we can receive what he has to offer. Well, Melvin Bragg. I've always found the broadcaster Melvin Bragg rather interesting. He's pretty well known if you um, watch certain channels and listen to certain radio programs, which probably a lot of you don't. So, um, but if you did, he's well known. He does actually write 
plays you've probably seen dramatised on television, but who reads the credits, kind of, I don't, so you probably don't realise. But I think he's what you call a polymath. It doesn't mean that he's good at arithmetic, it means somebody who's interested in a whole range of things. He's a fascinating individual. And he seems to be interested in religion, and is particularly critical of the aggressive new atheists, but he never seems to sort of come on board and embrace the Christian faith for himself. And I've often wondered why. Recently I read an interview with him which was quite revealing and may give a number of clues. His interviewer wrote, after the publication of uh, Melvin Bragg's last novel, Remember Me, he found himself blocked. Melvin Bragg said, I'd been writing fiction for 50 years since I was 19. And when you write fiction, it becomes a way of thinking. There's always a novel around. The strange thing was that after Remember Me, there wasn't. The interviewer went on. That's not surprising, he writes, when you consider that the book was a fictionalised account of Melvin Bragg's first marriage to the French artist and writer Lisa Roche, who committed suicide with the couple's six-year-old daughter in the house after Bragg left her for his current wife, the writer Kate Haste. Roche took her life in 1971 on an evening when Bragg had postponed going to see her and he then subsequently had a mental breakdown. Writing the novel was not cathartic, rather it stirred up emotions that he had buried. He was knocked back 30 years with, quote, what he calls the sickness of remorse with the sickness of remorse. Augustine, the 5th century um, Carthaginian theologian, who knew from personal experience what Melvin Bragg was talking about, he, though, when he became a Christian and thought about it, observed with these words, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And he discovered the benefits of a quiet conscience. The Apostle Paul made this observation, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. How is God able to bring about our salvation if we repent? How can he do it? In our reading this evening from Mark 15, there were... Um, in that passage, a sign, darkness at midday. There was a cry, my God, why have you ditched me or abandoned me or forsaken me? And there was a great visual aid, this thumping great curtain in the temple. The temple was a really big building. Not far short of the height of the Churchill Plaza, which you might just be able to see through the clear story window. And in that, curse, in that uh, temple, there was this curtain, which was as thick as, you know, a man's hand. And that, temple was, uh, that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. What was going on? 
Well, the darkness tells us that God is acting to punish rebellion against him. However, his anger is not poured out on us, who deserve it, but on Jesus as he's dying there on the cross. He's experiencing hell. He is abandoned in our place. He suffered terrible agony and he was punished so that we could go free. He died as a substitute for those people who put their trust in him. He was being forsaken by God the Father so that we might never need be. And the tearing of the uh, temple curtain from top to bottom, which separated God's people from coming into his holy presence on earth, into his holy of holies, was, a, was really a symbol of the massive barrier that there is between us and God, which has been erected by our forefathers from the beginning of time. And we are born in that separation from him. And this life is all about how we can reconnect with him, how he's able to enable us to do so, and what we have to do to do so. And there, what that cross is, what that open curtain is symbolising is that Jesus' death means that there is now nothing to prevent me from having a friendship with God because my sins have been paid for. Because that curtain was torn in two, that is a great visual demonstration that we can be sure that God has worked out a way in which we can have access to him and can be accepted by him. And while it's true that we are more wicked than we can ever realise, the cross tells us that we are more loved than we could ever dream of. And therefore we face a clear choice. We can take our rebellion to the grave and face Jesus as our judge, or we can take our rebellion to the cross and face Jesus as our saviour. Now, because it's so important to understand what God is up to, I'd like to explore two things this evening. What the whole temple thing was about and how the cross works. After all, this is about the most important choice that we'll ever make in life because it's our eternal destiny which is at stake. Now there's a passage in the uh, book of Hebrews, in uh, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 9 of Hebrews. You might like to um, turn it up, and I'll just open it so that I can tell you the page number. It's page 1207. And the particular section is verses 9 to 15, but I'm just going to concentrate on um, 14 to 16 this evening. You might like to read the whole thing, perhaps after I've explained it to you. Now in that passage, um, we learn of an act which, 9.14, cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. But that phrase in fuller context has loads of blood and gore about it, which tends to mean that we switch off at this point. 
But verse 14 in total says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? As I say, we can be put off by the blood and the gore of the Old Testament and never kind of make the effort to try and uh, work out what it's about. Dolores Williams, who's a theology professor at New York's Union Theological Seminary, not the most kind of um, soundly academic place or reliable source of Christian orthodoxy, she told a gathering, I don't think we need a theory of the atonement at all. Atonement has all to do so much with death. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. We just need to listen to the God within. In the heart and soul of the deities, we are all loved. And it doesn't matter who we're sleeping with. Well, probably the only thing um, in that extreme statement that we might possibly find ourselves in agreement with is that we do find the stuff about blood sacrifices strange. They are a bit weird. But strange as they may seem, getting our heads round it will pay dividends. And it's the explanation for how peace with God and a cleansed conscience are achieved. So here goes. This is the tabernacle. When the, uh, the people of Israel were, um, uh, you know, escaped from um, the uh, land of Egypt, they went kind of legging it round the Sinai Peninsula. It's a bit hot, and uh, they actually were told by God to create this kind of tent. This is a kind of canvas fence. Here's the entry, and so they go through here. This is how their system worked. They go through here with their animals to sacrifice, and they would uh, slaughter them and then uh, burn them up on this altar. And then the priests would wash their hands in this kind of wash basin, this laver there, then they'd be ready to approach this tented area. The first part here, the larger part, is called the, um, the holy place. And the priest would go in. He'd go past the table of shewbread. That's got some of the manna that was kind of miraculously provided each day when they were going through the desert. And on this side, you can barely see it. There's the seven uh, candles, seven uh, branch candlesticks, the menorah. And there, there's a little, um, well, actually, if I switch it to the next one, you can see it. Um, then uh, here we have this uh, altar of incense where they chuck incense on. I've only ever twice been to churches with incense. I have a very sensitive kind of smell, and I realize why I'm not an Anglo-Catholic and go in for this sort of stuff. But they chuck it on there. It symbolizes, of course, prayers going up to God. And they go in there, their prayers are for the people to atone. And once a year, the high priest alone can go through this curtain, this is the one that gets split into, to where the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is a box with poles. Um, you might have seen it if you'd seen Indiana Jones. And, uh, but um, this is kind of what it looked like. In that box, there would be the two tablets for the, for the, that God had given the Ten Commandments on. And the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the, the sacrifice bull on the top, on the lid, where the images of the cherubim are. 
and you do that once a year. And this place represented, you know, they, they refer to it as God's footstool. It's as if God has a body and he's in heaven, um, but his feet are here. It's a way of saying symbolically that the presence of God on earth is in that particular place. Diagrammatically, it would look like this. You know, the entrance, the altar, the wash basin, the laver, into the holy place, the uh, altar of incense. Once a year, high priest goes through, sprinkles the blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is there. And what the writer to the Hebrews does is he's making a comparison between the earthly stuff, all this clobber, with what's actually happened in heaven when Christ died on the cross for us. So taking it kind of through here, just the first three, uh, four ones, first of all. Uh, earthly speaking, what was that? Um, right, your pointer's packed up. Right, um, does that mean I can't? Oh, no, that, that's odd. Anyway, so we have, um, we have here in, in, in the Old Testament, we have this earthly tabernacle, this tent. We have... Um, access is through a sacrifice, the blood of animals. That sacrifice is presented by the high priest and the purpose is a legal one, to placate God's wrath against sin. And then he goes on to compare, if you take the top right-hand ones, that what's happened when Christ dies on the cross, that actually it's not just an event which is of significance on earth, it actually involves the whole of reality. It involves the heavenly court as well, where God rules. And the sacrifice is the blood of Christ, and it is presented by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He presents his own sacrifice in the heavenly court to God the Father. Now, God's moral character is consistent and from that character, right and wrong in the world are determined. It is the character of God which is our ultimate source of morality. Just as God's holiness cannot be polluted by sin, so too his justice can never be compromised. He always has to punish sin, rebellion against himself, by death. And there would be um, so many sufferers of injustice in this world, in this life, who would be the first to say to God, if you exist, why have you let X get away with such terrible things? You can't be a good God if you've let him get away with that. And we can think of some pretty dreadful things people have, have um, committed that we would be horrified if God did not do something about that. But although God is a God of justice, he is also a God of mercy and he is a loving God and he wants to restore the relationship with wayward prodigal children. How can he do so and uphold his justice? And the answer is to provide a sacrifice. If you like, the Old Testament was kind of like, um, well, like Sunday school, really. In the Old Testament, it was animals that were the sacrifice. But in the New Testament, which is the reality that works, it is he himself. God, the Son, an eternal member of the Holy Trinity, volunteered to come to earth as a human being so that he could die in our place for our sins. 
and God's justice could be satisfied because sin is punished and we have the potential to be in the clear. So back to our, uh, to continue our comparison, if you look on the left-hand side, the fifth one down, um, what does the sacrifice obtain? Well, humanly speaking, in the Old Testament, it obtains access into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God symbolically on earth. And the effect of that is that the people are ceremonially clean. And the result is it needs repeating every year because they carry on sinning. And if we look on the, the heavenly side, what happens in heaven, well, we have God in heaven. We have um, access to him in heaven. And the effect is that we have a clean conscience. It is washed clean. It's like in many kind of Christian if you're illustrations, it's as if we go around with some kind of rucksack on our back, which is a kind of burden of a guilty conscience, and you can't escape it. And it kind of comes to your mind in the middle of the night, or at some other occasion when somebody might say something and you think they're alluding to it. To have that burden lifted and to have a clean conscience is a wonderful thing. And the result is that eternal redemption, that we've been kind of liberated by God, has been acquired, and it's for all eternity. Now, there are several what they call models or aspects of the atonement. The atonement means basically the theory of how the cross works, how we become at one with God. And here are some different, here are some. There is the forensic one, the one from the law courts, if you like. We are guilty. And the solution that the cross achieves is that we are now justified, which basically means we are declared right by the judge. Or as in, um, if you were to read the uh, New Testament translation of the, of the um, in the language of Papua New Guinea, who speak a kind of pidgin English, it would say, for justification, God say him, okay. Which is a bit easier to kind of grasp than the Latinized kind of language of justification, sanctification, glorification, etc. So there is the guilty picture, and that God declares us right with him because of what Jesus has done. Next, there's in terms of relationships. There is alienation. We are alienated from God. That's our default position. There is this kind of awkward barrier between us. You know, if we were to meet, well, it'd be trouble, but basically we would feel very uncomfortable about meeting God. That's our default position. We're all alienated, estranged with God. And his solution is to have us reconciled. God was pleased, we read in Colossians 1.20, through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Another picture is that of being trapped, being enslaved. The solution is redemption. In him, we have redemption bought out 
brought out, bought out through his blood, Ephesians 1, 7. And then from the cultic world of the Old Testament, with all this kind of washing stuff, they love washing the Jews, um, which is surprising given that water's pretty scarce. Um, but from their cultic world and their cultic understanding, they see themselves as defiled, that they are polluted, that they are unclean, they are yuck. And the solution is to be cleansed. The blood of Christ will cleanse our consciences from acts which lead to death. Hebrews 9.14 So we have four aspects of the cross. Guilty and justified, they're legal concepts drawn from the world of the law courts. And then we have alienated and reconciled, they're relational terms drawn from the world of the family. And then we have enslaved and redeemed, they're drawn from the world of, well in their day, economic slavery. And then we have defiled and cleansed, which are drawn from this sacrificial world with its blood and gore with which we're less familiar. Now do you notice the word that was common to each of those verses that I read out to each of those illustrations of the, uh, how the cross operates? Well, here they are. We have now been justified by his blood. God was pleased through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In him we have redemption through his blood. And then the blood of Christ will cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. That recurring word, blood, it's only because of the death of Christ in our place for our sins that the wrath of God against our sins can be placated or in biblical language propitiated, which uh, you come across in our communion service, meaning that it satisfied God's justice and so he would not look on the sins of the penitent adversely. In fact, he is able to remit their sins He's able to acquit us. He is able to forgive us. And the point of this chart is that it encapsulates a simple but crucial point. These great achievements of the atonement, justification, reconciliation, redemption and purification, only make sense if foundationally there is the substitution of Christ who died in our place, the sinner's place. Only if there is that do all these others make any sense at all. You take that out and they don't make any sense. There's no basis for them to happen. And that's what lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. Roger Nicoll is uh, a Canadian theologian and he's called this the linchpin of the gospel. He says this, a linchpin is a mechanical contrivance that makes possible the unified function of several other parts. If the linchpin is removed, the other parts no longer perform their own functions, they just float away in futility. This, I believe, he says, is precisely what occurs in the doctrine of the atonement. Thus, penal substitution of Christ 
is the vital center of the atonement, a linchpin without which everything else loses its foundation and flies off the handle, so to speak. Well, let's end up by unpacking verse 15 as a partial summary of what we've learned this evening. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, this is taken from the family aspect of the atonement. Christ is the mediator between the two parties, between the Heavenly Father and his wayward children. The Father's longing is to be able to forgive his children, but the demands of justice have to be satisfied. The wayward children, if they could just see the reality of their plight, would realise that they cannot atone for their own sins. There's nothing they can do to make up for what they've done wrong and how they've rebelled against God, their Heavenly Father. Someone needs to take those sins and suffer the due punishment for them. And Christ voluntarily fulfills that role. As a human being, he can represent us. Being divine, he is perfect and so able to be an acceptable substitutionary sacrifice. And he both propitiates God's wrath by satisfying his law, hence it's called penal substitutionary atonement, and he expiates or he takes away our sins from us. They're no longer a barrier between us and our Heavenly Father. That those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. I was reading in a Christian medical fellowship paper a while ago the health benefits of being a Christian. Although there are questions around defining health, and establishing causality, it seems that evidence from over 1,200 studies and 400 reviews has shown an association between faith and a number of positive health benefits, including protection from illness, coping with illness, and faster recovery times from illness. And it's pretty obvious, really, as on average a Christian would avoid such risky behaviour as excessive drinking, smoking, promiscuous sex and the like. And if they do get terminal illness, they often have a devoted support network of family and friends and have the peace of knowing where they're going. Simply being at peace with God conveys, in uh, medical language, psychoimmunological benefits so that we may be less susceptible even to the common cold because we have this kind of peaceful, positive, persisting outlook on life. It's CMF file on number 44 on their website if you want to look at it further. But fortunate as we are in receiving these benefits in this life, the greater benefit is the assured enjoyment of our eternal inheritance made possible by the work of Christ. And the basis of such an assured outcome, he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Again, this is to use the language of finance. Someone is said to be held for ransom, a ransom price is paid, and they are released. 
But in this case, who is the ransom price paid to? Well, not the devil, or the devil will have won. No, God in Christ paid the ransom price to himself to redeem us, to purchase our freedom. And the price is death in our place for our sins. So, verse 14, that we may serve the living God, and then verse 15, may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Some of you will remember the Apollo 13 moon mission. Others will have seen the film. When the rocket was far from home, it was hit by debris in space, and there was the famous message over the radio, Houston, we have a problem. It looked as if those three astronauts would die in space, but they were painstakingly guided back home in their crippled craft. The old mission plan was jettisoned. New systems were developed for getting them home. As they re-entered the atmosphere, there was only one particular trajectory that they would be able to take which would work. If they took any other trajectory back into Earth, they would have been burned up. But with the world holding its breath, they were guided safely home by the control centre. Well, you see, there's only one way that our eternal destiny can be secured, and that was through the death of God in Christ for our sins. We can't get back to him in any other way than through that that God provides, and by us responding, by admitting our sin and therefore our need, and to trust him, that what he's done on the cross works. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, by your death on the cross, you have won pardon for our sins, and you have opened the way for direct access to the throne of God. Help us to draw near with boldness and confidence, that we may give you thanks and praise for your work of redemption. Amen.